Yeah, I think um, when I grew up uh, as a child, and of course was able to listen to my father uh, deliver lessons, I think I always had a sense of the prophets just being uh, page after page of judgment and doom and gloom, and there really wasn't anything terribly exciting to read in there. It just seemed like, okay, they're going to get it, and they're going to get it, and they're going to get it, and everybody's going to go, okay, I got it. They're all going to get it. And, and never really appreciated how uh, all of the prophets interweave these am- amazing pictures of hope. And it's not until you really dig into the details and see a lot of those pictures rise out that, yes, there are images of judgment that are presented. And yet what God is doing in the midst of those uh, declarations is is offering uh, amazing opportunities of hope and repentance and drawing near to God. And that's one of the things we're going to get to look at tonight uh, in the second chapter of Joel is a, a section that just sounds like doom and gloom. And yet the amount of hope that is laid out in this chapter is immense. I only can cover uh, half of it tonight and, and look at the hope that's in the first half of of this book and Lord or this chapter and Lord willing next week we'll look at the second half. Now we did chapter one last week on Sunday night and we looked at that what has occurred as this prophecy unfolds is that there has been a a, a devastating locust attack that has uh, been on on the nation. It is something that has been unprecedented. It begins by saying, you know, ask your your ancestors, your fathers, if anything like this has ever happened before. And, We made the point that that kind of feels like the world we live in right now. Everything is unprecedented and it was unprecedented for what they were going through. And yet there was a message that in their troubled times, God was using those difficulties to get their eyes to turn upward. And yet in the midst of that, there was this one little chilling thing that was said back in chapter one and verse 15, where then God says, but the day of the Lord is near. And we would want to raise our hand and go, we already had the day of the Lord where we're good no more. And yet chapter two now is going to express what is going to come, the the imminent coming of the day of the Lord. And yet in the midst of that description, God is going to tell the people what they should do. And as he does, you're going to see really some amazing pictures of who our God is and why we love him and and serve him. So you have your, your Bibles open to Joel at chapter 2. I want you to notice how it begins. In Joel 2, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their their like has never been before, nor will there again after them through the, the years of all generations. Fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of the chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of the flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. 
Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall, they march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths, they do not jostle one another, each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and all are not halted. They leap upon the city, they run upon the walls, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. And the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. Who can execute his word? He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? Let's start with this beginning picture. And it is really interesting, the the nature of the flipping of the description in chapter one. We notice in the last lesson that it's a description of a locust attack, and yet the locusts sound like an army, and it talks about the whirring and the chariots and the horses. And so the locust attack sounds like this horrifying army, and now this time in chapter 2, he describes the coming army. It's going to be the Babylonians. They're going to get you. And in the picture of doing that, it sounds like a locust attack. Did you notice the the imagery of that, particularly in in verse 5? where it talks about them leaping on the mountains and this powerful army is drawn up. And then again, in in verse nine, they leap upon the city. They run on the walls. They climb in the houses. They enter through the windows. Well, that's what locusts would do. When you had a massive locust attack, it would just darken the sky and they would just be everywhere. And they're running on the walls and they're jumping into the, into the, the windows and they're, they're just everywhere. You can't get rid of them. And he goes, that's what this new day of the Lord is going to be like, but it's not going to be locusts this time. It's going to be God's terrifying army that is coming against you. And so in all of these pictures, you are getting an imagery of, of devastation that's going to come. Very similar, that would sound like locusts. Back in verse 3, before them is the Garden of Eden. And when they have done going through it, all that's left is a desolate wilderness. So they are just going to wipe everything out. So beauty before them, but they leave destruction in their wake. A fire before them, a flame behind them is just symbolizing all of these images of judgment. And the severity of it really summarizes itself in in verse 10 and it's easy to read verse 10 and you and you read there and it talks about well the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars are no longer shining and and you might read that and think well here he is talking about the end of the world right here is uh, the earth quaking and the heavens trembling and and one of the things that we have we've talked about in our revelation study that is a reminder of it here is these images are just the way God talks about judgment in general. And the context has to tell you what exactly it's talking about. And so here he is talking about an army that's going to come against Judah and bring about its complete destruction. There's not going to be anything left. It was paradise before and, and the beauty uh, of the land before. But when they're done, it's going to be rubble. There's not going to be anything left. And thus the imagery is it's the earthquaking. It is the sun going dark. It is the moon not giving its light. It is stars that are no longer shining or stars that are falling. The end of the nation has come. And that this is how God talks. 
when it is the lights out for a nation, when their time is done. And that's the proclamation that is being given. It is over for you. The judgment is going to be complete. And verse 11 really seals that in the fact that you will notice that God says in verse 11, he doesn't call out and say, this is the Babylonians or give it a name of somebody's army. Notice carefully in verse 11, whose army this is that's coming. The Lord's. The Lord is bringing his army. So God is using that nation to bring judgment against Judah. It is God himself who is going to do this. And that's why it says there at the end of verse 11 that the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? When God sets his face against you, there is no standing against him. And the day of the Lord is now decreed and it is time for the nation to be done. And now you might hear all that and think, now, Brent, you just opened your lesson saying that there was like this was going to be hopeful and good and all that. And this sounds like oh, what I always read when I open up the books and read about the prophets, right? It's the same old thing is judgment, doom and gloom, and it's over and done and all that. But here's what's fascinating is that God doesn't end this section that way. After saying that now I'm going to bring a nation against you and it's going to be I myself who stands against you and you will not be able to endure it and there's not going to be anything left and fire is going to devour the land and it's going to be utter ruin and loss. Listen to what God now says next in verse 12. Notice the very first words. Yet even now declares the Lord. There is something stunning about the character of God that he can make a complete judgment declaration like this and say your time is done your sins have brought this against you judgment is coming a fierce army that none is going to be able to escape and then after giving all of those words of doom and judgment and cloud and darkness still be able to turn and say to the people Yet, even now, there's a chance. Yet, even now, there's a chance of reversal. Even now, it is not hopeless. Yet, even now, there's an opportunity. Even now, there are still things that can change. Even now, it is not set in stone that even now, God will listen. And notice how he expresses that. Verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and tear your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering. For the Lord your God, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his chamber and the bride her, his room and, his, and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your inheritance a, by, a reproach or a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is your God? I just want us to be stunned by the fact that God always has this offer and says, and so yet it's not too late. 
Even though the die is cast and the handwriting is set on the wall that the nation is going to be judged. Here is God saying, and yet it's not too late. And you'll notice some of the descriptions that he calls for the people to do. First, he says in verse 12, if you would just turn to me with all of your heart, if you would meanfully turn to me, there is still hope. God's first words always to his people is just, if you would turn to me, if you would stop going the direction you're going and just turn back to me, then things could change. And yet what is interesting is that the repeated problem that the prophets expose book after book after book, declaration after declaration is God keeps saying, I have done everything I can to wake you up and turn you, and yet nothing works. I do good to you and bless you, and you keep running away from me. And so I bring judgments, and I bring difficulties and hardships, and you still keep running away from me. No matter what I do, you refuse to turn and come back to me with all of your heart. I'll give you a couple examples of that. For example, you have Hosea toward the end of his prophecies saying you need to return because it's because of your sin, your iniquity that you've stumbled. You're in the condition you're in because you won't wake up to the fact that your sins are cutting you off from God. Listen to how Amos really exposes this. Amos four, verse six. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you still have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I withheld the rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and your valve trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plague among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with swords along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench in your camps. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched out of the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Here is God saying, I don't know what to do to wake you up. I, I keep trying to get you to turn to me with all of your heart. And so now Joel 2 opens by saying, the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is coming. It is fierce. It is going to be terrible. It's going to be awful. And yet, yet still... Even now, if you will return to me, things can change. If you would return, it's not too late. And friends, I hope that we would think about the power of, of, of that very message, that we would remind ourselves that God is teaching us that there is always hope if we would just turn to him. There is always still opportunity if we would just turn around and come back to him. That's what he is seeking. Even now, verse 12, return to me with all of your heart, not superficially, 
not merely by words, but truly a change of life is what he is calling for. And second, right along with it, after saying to turn to God with all of their hearts, you'll notice in verse 13, he says, I want you to tear your hearts and not just your clothes. You know, don't just simply do the external formal mourning scene. Don't just simply say, oh, this is terrible and, and cry out in a formal way, but truly be cut to the heart because what God wants us to be is broken by our sins. I, I don't know how many times God has to tell us that. <clears throat> First couple of opening beatitudes that Jesus gives. He tells us that he wants us to be poor in spirit and to be mourning over our sins. Over and over again, God is trying to tell us, I want you to be cut to the heart. In fact, that's a phrase that we know so well from Acts chapter 2 and verse 37 that the people are so convicted when they hear Peter's sermon, they are cut to the heart. And so they are crying out to God what God wants for us is to be cut to the heart. But here's what he wants us to be cut to the heart by. He doesn't want us to be cut to the heart because, oh, we've lost all these things and, oh, you know, judgment's coming and that's a bad thing. He wants us to be cut to the heart because the relationship that we had with God is broken. All of these disasters and troubles and judgments were all intended to try to communicate to the people. Aren't you upset that your relationship with God has been ruined? Aren't you upset that God can no longer be accessed because you have walked so far away from him? Aren't you devastated by the fact that you've turned your back on God? That is what he wants them to mourn over is be upset of the impact of what our sins have done, the consequence of our behavior, that we are separated from God. And so we would have deep sorrow because we have been taken away from God's presence. And God wants us to see that so that we would move closer to him. And so these images are given to us in that way. And yet in the midst of that, I think it is so powerful to note what he then says in verse, verse 13 with that. After telling them, to tear their hearts and not just their clothes and to return to the Lord their God. Here's the reason why is he goes about and he describes the character of God. We talked a little bit about this on Wednesday night. Is that God doesn't want you to be so overwhelmed by your sins that you give up on God. He doesn't want you to be so overwhelmed by the, the guilt of what you've done that you then just say, well, I just can't come back to God. And notice how that fits what's happening here in verse 13. Why should we tear our hearts? Why should we return to God after all the sins that we've committed and the die is cast, the judgment is coming? Here's the answer that's given in verse 13. Because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents from disaster. You might remember in our Jonah study, remember Jonah was mad about that. Jonah was upset about the character of God. He made this very quote and said, I knew you were going to be this way, that you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and merciful, and how dare you? 
And here Joel says, no, this is something we lean into. The reason we can return to God with all of our heart, if we will just be cut inside about our sins, is because of the very nature and the very character of God. He's merciful. Your sins are not too great for God. And this book truly reflects it. Their sins are so bad that God says, I wiped you out with locusts. And I'm sending an army that's going to utterly destroy you. Yet even now, if you'll return to me, I am a gracious and merciful God. And I am slow to anger. And I am abounding in steadfast love. And notice how it ends with that picture of his character. And I relent from disaster. I can stop this. It's not what I want to do. I don't want to bring this judgment. If you'll just turn to me and be cut to the heart, I will change everything. In fact, notice the change in verse 14. I love how Joel offers this up. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind. Let's think about that. Here is two chapters of judgment upon judgment for your sins. And now God says, but here's the thing. If you would just turn back to me and if you would do it from a cut heart, if you would tear not your clothes, but be torn in heart. I am a God who is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And rather than bringing disaster and judgment. I can bring a blessing instead. That had to be amazing words to hear. Because you would hear this prophecy and think, well, we're just done. We might as well give up. We might as well close the doors. We might as well mail it in. Our sins are too much. God says judgment's coming, so we ought to just give up. And notice that God says, don't give up. In fact, do the opposite. I am able to relent and leave a blessing. Friends, it is possible in our most hopeless situation for God to turn and leave a blessing. In our darkest of times, yet even now, God says, if you will turn to me, who knows what can change? Who knows what God is able to accomplish? Friends, that is true not only for us as individuals, but please think about that nationally. And we look at our our nation, we look at our culture, and we go, look how it's just steaming ahead, away from God, full blast, no concern for God whatsoever. And yet here is a message that says, yet if we would turn, he can leave a blessing. If we would just be torn in the heart and turn our eyes up back to God, who knows that God could relent and rather than bringing disaster and judgment, go ahead and leave a blessing instead. This is the character of God. And so we use that in terms of ourselves as a culture. We use this character of God for ourselves as individuals. It is never too late for God to completely change your life. And I'm sure in your life, you can put your finger on times where God has turned darkness to light, where God has taken the worst of circumstances and moved you through it. And this is the picture that God is giving here, is that even in the darkest of times, it is possible for God to leave a blessing because he is gracious and merciful. And I love verse 14 essentially says, who knows what God will do? Who knows what he may do in this moment? Rather than it being judgment, it may be a blessing. Who knows what he could do at this moment if we would turn to him 
And not only turn to him, notice what he says to do in verses 15 through 17. After he tells them to turn to God with all of their heart, to not simply tear their clothes, but to be torn in the heart as well. He says, if you would just reach toward me in worship. You'll notice it says, blow the trumpet in Zion. There's a little bit of irony to that because if you go back to chapter 2 in verse 1 where we started this, he said, blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, in verse 1, he said that because blow the trumpet as a warning signal because of the impending judgment and doom of the army that's coming. You can imagine a city sounding the alarm as judgment and disaster comes. But now he says, blow the trumpet in Zion, not as a warning signal of the coming doom, but to gather everybody to worship God before it's too late. Verse 15, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Notice who's to gather. Verse 16, consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Notice nobody's supposed to be left behind. In fact, notice the end of verse 16. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. If you have a wedding going on, shut the wedding down and let's gather and worship God before it's too late. It's a calling for everybody in the city. Come and assemble and cry out to the Lord your God for rescue before it is too late. Call for God to spare us and rescue us so that God's glory can be truly seen. In fact, you see that at the end of verse 17. Why should they, speaking of the nations, say among the peoples, where is their God? What a great picture. God, we are coming together and we are assembling and worshiping and we are crying out to you. And we know that judgment, we are worthy of it. And yet we are calling out to you so that you will do something so that your name and your fame and your glory would be put on display in this moment. And how many times have we talked about how the faithful people of God pray that way, praying on the basis of God's name, on the basis of his glory, that God would act not because of us, but because of him. And that's what you see in verse 17, a calling for the people to come together and cry out. And I want to observe this because it is... It is just such a temptation. It's almost our natural default in the face of disaster and hardships and difficulties and chaos and loss that sometimes the last thing we feel like we want to do is go worship God. It just, you know, I just, I'm not in the mood. I'm just not on the right headspace. I just don't feel like I should do it. And I want you to see in the midst of this, with this impending doom and a calling for the people to be cut to the heart and turn back to God, he says, you know what you need? is to gather to call, together to call out to your God, to gather together and have this moment where we are crying out to God and asking God to help us through this moment and to rescue us and save us and to answer us in the day of our calamity. Friends, I, I just want to have this be our one big point for a wide application for your life as an individual. And as we think about how we go forward as a culture and a society is that even now, if we would turn to the Lord, tear our hearts and gather for worship toward him with sincere hearts, he can turn and leave a blessing. We have an amazing God who says, if you will just turn to me, 
I can change everything because I am merciful and gracious. I am slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I relent from disaster. It is so much a picture of a good parent, a, a, a wonderful parent who says, if you would just come back to me, I'll relent and I'll give you the blessing. I'll give you the blessings of the family. I'll pour it out on you and shower it upon you if you just come back to me. And that's the picture that we're being given. If you would just turn back and seek him with all of your heart, who knows what God will do? And friends, that should be one of our prayers for our nation is praying for this nation to turn back to God before it is too late. And who knows what God may be able to do and choose to do for us as a people if we would turn to him. And ultimately, the message of the theme of this book comes to light yet again. God is all that we need. He is more than enough in the face of our difficulties, in the face of distress and hardship and loss. Because he rules over all that is going on in this world. And he rules over all that's going on in our lives. And he wants us to call out to him. And even now, even now, everything can change. If we'd be cut to the heart and look to the Lord our God. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a stunning message of hope. That, Lord, you could write to a people who are on the brink of disaster and still tell them that you would relent and leave them a blessing if they would just turn. And, Lord, I pray that we would feel that hope for ourselves as individuals, that we would see that you are a gracious God. And even in the face of our sinning and the, the, the guilt and the weight of uh, significant things that we have done against you, Lord, that we have this wonderful hope that we can still turn to you and that you relent and that you leave a blessing. And Lord, I pray that for our country. We are a country that has certainly steered far from you. And yet we know these words of hope that it is not too late. And yet even now, if we would turn back to you, who knows if disaster could be avoided and a blessing could be left. You have blessed us so richly in this land, Lord. Forgive us for how we have, as a people have turned our backs on you. And Lord, we pray that your glory would be seen in this country and in this world. That people would turn their eyes upward in the face of the difficulties that are going on in our society and see that they need you with all of their heart. To no longer ignore all that is going on, but use these things as a means by which that we would see you, Lord, and help us to turn to you and not turn to you superficially. But, Lord, let it be truly a full restoration of the hearts of the people across this earth. Lord, help us to be the leaders in that. Help us to be a people that in the face of our distress, we cry out to you, we turn to you and we worship you. And help us to be that light to the world around us, calling for those that we know, our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers, to turn back to you because you are a gracious and merciful God. And who knows what change may happen if we would turn back to you. Lord, help us in that effort. In Jesus' name, amen.
We'll sing an invitation song and we invite you to come to the Lord Jesus and see the hope that is available in him. What a stunning picture that I hope that even in your darkest days and most difficult times, you will not forget that you have a God who says, I am merciful and gracious. And if you will be cut to the heart and if you will be truly turning back to me, I'll receive you back. There is still yet hope to join back with your father in heaven. Can we help you do that this evening in any way possible? Let us know where you can come forward while we stand and while we sing.